Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. So we were having dinner the other night. I know, Amy, you have told me multiple times that I needed to try these Beyond Burgers. And we finally did. The kids were very excited to try it. And the husband and everybody, the jury was basically that we liked it a lot. And it was really good. I'm very excited because for actually for a couple months now, we've been wanting to have our guest speaker join us, Miss Patty Dollarhide. And I'm so excited to have her today to talk to us because our family got into this discussion about what is better. Is it better to eat the plant-based burger or the beef burger? So I'm excited to explore that today. excited about this topic I have to tell you because like I've been to conferences that just rip apart beef (laughs) and they really do from the environmental impacts and things like that and it's really hard for me to tell what's true so I'm super super excited to have Patty today I'll tell um tell our listeners a little bit about Patty before she gets started Patty Dollarhide is a registered dietitian who works with the Beef Cattle Institute at Kansas State University She is a third-generation farmer and rancher. Her professional work has been in various segments of the food service industry, including healthcare operations, sales, distribution, and now academia, and farming. Connecting people with food on the table has never been more important. Buyers are reaching beyond the nutrition label and challenging how animals were produced and cared for, as well as their environmental impact. Having been on multiple sides of the conversation, Patty understands how important it is that we focus on the evidence and interpret technical information in the way that is meaningful and does not cause undue fear of foods. So welcome, Patty. We're super, super, (laughs) super honored to have you. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate that very much. Good to be here, especially after the uh, beef has been in the news a lot, even before COVID, but but, uh, going to the grocery store and seeing the shelves empty was humbling, I think, for all of us. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And at one point, the price of beef in my store, it was just skyrocketed. And it's come down a little bit, but it just definitely took a jump. So that was, yeah. And we're still seeing limits, even on things. I think it was a little, uh, in our generation, at least I've never seen that before. And to, it was very humbling to, uh, to see what happens and see how precarious our food supply is and yes. how every step is and I think it's done a lot to for everyone to think about not just how it's produced but the, all the steps in between getting it to our shelves you know we all have to work together on this the farmers and the ranchers have been working on efficiencies and productivity for many years but we need some help you know there's a um, there's some things broken in the food supply system but they they're probably not as broken as they used to be believe it or not. I mean, there's been a lot of improvements over the years. So if you think about maybe how things were done 30 years ago, there were a lot of problems back then also. But things have gotten fine-tuned a lot better. But yes, we still have room to improve, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that there's definitely a lot with, I guess, maybe all livestock in terms of 
being able to feed more people with less resources, that there's a lot going on with the farming industry to help with that and to have a better impact. So the big question I have is, like I mentioned, my family's constantly telling me about studies that show that beef is the worst thing we can eat for a protein source. So my big question is, do you think that substituting plant protein for meat can make a difference in climate change? That's a really good question, and it's a, a very popular question. <laughs> and since I, you know, I grew up on a farm, you know, I am a registered dietitian. I thought I knew something about food, but every step of the supply chain that I've worked in, I learned new things. And since coming to the Big Cattle Institute, I've learned a lot more about modern agriculture and how we have made some of those improvements over the years. So your question is, is it better to eat plants? Well, when you look at sustainability, it's really hard to define it with just one attribute. So if you're looking at, for example, uh, methane production, you know, do cattle produce more methane than pigs and chickens, for example? Well, absolutely, because they have a rumen. And a rumen is how they digest their food. So they're able to take things and turn them into protein that nobody else can eat. So I think I've done some tours with different people that, you know, only 2% of us are left in agriculture. So it's really common that you might not even a farmer. You might not even wow. have been to a farm. You know, we found people that we asked the question in a room full of food service operators at a meeting, how many people grew up on a farm? How many people had grandparents that were farmers? You know, and how many people knew a farmer? And it was very humbling because when you live in Kansas, pretty much everybody, you know, is connected. But when you get outside of our Midwest world, you get on in some of the other areas, people just don't, they're just not familiar with what goes on. And so we talk about things like forage and hay and, and you know, talk about what cattle eat nutritionally. And, and, and they're able to eat things that are pretty unbelievable. Like I have mules, for example. My mules don't, they get pretty pampered. They get good hay, which things that, uh, you know, have never been wet. They've been very clean and a cow can take things that has weeds in it you know, that has dark things and they turn things like the you know waste product from ethanol production for example they turn uh cotton holes uh leftover cotton into protein for us so they're just their stomachs are a lot different and as a result when they when they digest that they do produce a gas called methane so I've seen statistics all over the place, anywhere. In fact, this morning I read one in Forbes magazine that said cattle produce 41% of the methane, which these numbers are just mind-boggling. And I think the really important thing in the United States to remember is cattle are produced a lot of different ways. There's cattle in the United States where they're going to market, and they're, they're the big, healthy animals at 18 months. You know, 18 to 24 months. You get in some of the countries where, like India, they may not even have a calf until they're four years old. Oh so you got a lot of freeloaders running around, burping <laughs> methane, doing nothing. You know, and so when you look at the look at the global numbers, the global numbers are a lot different than the United States numbers. That's the one thing. Okay. Know. You know, they're just different because they're raised differently. They have different kinds of animal health. They have different kinds of nutrition. Uh, they grow differently. They have different genetics. You know, in the United States, we've done a lot of things to breed for specific characteristics where they make more muscle. They, it's just like 
you and me, some of us put on, we put on protein, we put on muscles, and let's put on fat. I mean, in different places, and it's done the same thing with animals, and gotten very scientific with it. But but do they produce methane, and do they do it more than other animals? Absolutely. But a lot of things the cow eats, nobody else is going to eat. So I think that's the biggest difference when you look at, if you look at how much the animal eats, how many calories they eat, and then how much protein they produce, cows will win every time because they eat a very low-quality diet. If you look at chicken and pigs, they're eating corn, they're eating a lot of soybeans. Those are things that actually you and me could eat if we wanted to. Okay. I hear that a lot, and I I have a hard time turning that around and explaining that to somebody else then, because you said that, you know, cows eat what we don't eat. You know, why why is that beneficial? So, because if we didn't have cows, so the stuff that they're eating then, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> I can say, it could go to the landfill. So then it could go to the landfill. Okay. And that just methane gas also, or it produces a different kind of gas, actually. And so the methane, it's kind of a life cycle deal. It goes, you know, yeah, we take photosynthesis and we eat grass and, you know, they burp it. But the, but one of the things, and this is very, very, you have to really put your head around it, but methane lasts about 10 years in the environment. When we go dig fossil fuels and oil out of the ground, that kind of gas that it produces, it lives for years and years and years and years. But this Thing, it kind of burns itself out because it gets recycled, it comes back as manure, it goes into the ground, you know, and it recycles back to the plant. And so, actually, it's a different kind. There's three different kinds of, you know, those kind of like gases. And I'm not okay. by no means, am I an expert? I have a difficult time <laughs> explaining that sometimes too. And I do have some pictures for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but I think the things that I walk away from cattle about is cattle are complicated. The whole beef industry, everything that we put on our plate, I think beef is one of the more complex protein. Also, a very high-quality, low-calorie protein. Right. So, again, people look at, could I eat plants instead of beef? I think that they're all part of the solution. You know, I don't have with eating plants for protein. My, lo- my Lord, I've been trying to get people to eat differently for the- my whole career as a dietitian to eat right. more plants. But I'm really not doing a very good job because... If you look at dietary guidelines, we're really we're really slackers when it comes to vegetables and fruits, you know, yep. for years. So if we can if you can swap that around a little bit, that would be great. But if you really look at the dietary guidelines and you look at what people are eating, protein has stayed about the same for the last thirty years. We're eating about six hundred more calories, but they're not coming from protein. Right. Right. So I don't know. It's it's a big issue though and and i agree when if you put the numbers side by side cattle look they look like they use a lot of resources but the two things to remember are are you looking at united thinking about united states the modern agriculture or and or including all of the ones around the world right because that's not giving us resources back right yeah i I, you know i said i've been to conferences that just uh, i went to one that and heard a a prominent uh, vegetarian dietitian speak and she was you know pretty critical of, of meat and, and of course she has the best interest in that but I was you know she she really made it sound quite concerning that you know from an environmental impact having meat be a primary source of protein not sustainable 
What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we can't really eat our way out of sustainability problems. Yep. Do we have sustainability problems? Yes, we do. We have, you know, we have all these people to feed. We have a lot of needs. We are looking at a lot of things with soil regeneration. You know, it's a multifaceted issue. When you think about what veget, if you look at what the World Health Organization said with the Lancet report and how much they told us to eat more fruits and vegetables, that would, that would take a lot of water. Yep. If you look at all of the resources that are really precarious, water is probably one that uh, gets a lot of attention around the world. So can we really afford uh, environmentally for everybody to make those kind of changes? There's been a lot of research that's looked at that also, and they said they don't think it could happen. You know, I, cattle, if they're truly, if you truly look at the numbers, cattle are 2% a problem. And I think nothing illustrates it better than if you look at what happened with COVID. The cities cleared out, the smog cleared out, the air got cleaner, same amount of cattle. Right. Cattle <laughs> population didn't go anywhere. But right. what really changed was transportation. I think that people have, there's a very good marketing com, or marketing ploy that has, like you mentioned, Amy, you said that it has, there's some other agendas sometimes. You know, and you look at who's pushing some of these things. There are definitely agendas out there and agenda-driven that are not science-based. But um, I believe that there's room for all of them. I don't think you can necessarily replace a high biological value protein. Like Actually, you know, not only do they eat things that no one else eats, like this, if you go to Arizona and you look at rangeland, what are you going to put out there if you don't have cattle on it? But then you also look at what else does a cow produce besides edible edible portions? Other things that we use every day, leather, uh, medicines, a, a variety of, of products. I think about whether they say 45% of the carcass goes for those things. It's a pretty amazing dilemma. But getting rid of cattle, there's studies going on right now. What would happen to that ground that has grass that isn't... Uh, it would take a lot of money to water, you know, to turn it into some kind of productive um, ground to feed people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have some of that here. I have a farm now, you know, and so all of it isn't really good for farming crops. Some of it has to just be grass because it's too rocky or it's, you know, doesn't get enough. The soil isn't very good. So you have to kind of look at what you've got and what, sense to raise it there but yeah some of these arguments are very very disturbing almost and makes you want to be vegetarian but when you go back and you really dig into who is giving the message why are they giving the message you know the mushroom people made a lot of money with the mushroom burger i mean i have nothing to get the mushroom burger tastes great they took <laughs> and mixed it with beef and asked me back in my school food service days when you put soy in, in mm-hmm. extended it you know, how can we make the meat go a little further? Since I've been home uh, cooking more meals for my family, I, I try to extend it too. I put I try to put things in the crock pot that make it go a little bit further. You know, you put beans with it, you put other vegetables. You know, is there anything wrong with that? Not really. But to complete rid of beef in the environment, I think there's a it's a bigger story. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot about the mushroom burger. I've not tried it. But the other thing I think about is like the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger. We talked about this before, Laura. Yeah. Nutritionally, 
really not that much better. And in fact, in many categories, it's not nearly as healthy as mm-hmm. beef in terms of sodium content and those types of things. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, you know, it's funny when you look, everybody has the impression that beef is so bad for us. And I think excess meat consumption maybe isn't good, but you know, if you look at the, the nutritional breakdown of an impossible burger versus beef, it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty dramatically better. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the beef burger is for us. Mm-hmm. Well, there's been a lot of talk about eating clean, you know, whatever, yes. that is, whatever, whatever that is. is. <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> tell me what that is. <laughs> yeah, the same thing as a healthy food. I think I don't know what that is either. Right. If you look at the, the two side by side, one has, you know, if you believe that processed food is not what you want to do, then, you know, those items definitely have processed. Are they safe? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They are just based on a different, are they healthier? I don't, I don't know. I don't think I could that in there. Are they more expensive? I don't know. They're, they're the picture, you know, they aren't bad. I mean, I think it's amazing that they've taken that, the color and the texture is a lot better than it used to be. Can you turn mm-hmm. the whole muscle? You know, maybe we can maybe we can make some substitutions for ground meat, but if we can make a steak out of that, I don't know. Yeah. Take a lot more work. Yeah. And you know, to your point, we 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 uh, we do eat too much in some parts, some some places. The, the Beyond Burger, they don't really. It's not a segment that is frightening to me. You know, you've got Tyson and Cargill both investing in those uh, segments, which is. But why are they investing? Are they investing because of they think it's going to be an environmental save? No. Yeah. They invest because it's um, part of the portfolio and it's things that customers want. Exactly. So I don't think we're going to be able to, and I, it makes me laugh sometimes when I hear people say that. If, if it was that easy to just stop eating beef and solve this climate problem, you think we wouldn't do it? Right. I don't know. I also think that we're on the verge of, and I think we're already seeing this, I think we we see uh, nutrient deficient diets. I, I think that there's a lot of people who aren't being smart vegetarians, aren't getting the protein that they need to get. Mm-hmm. And it makes, it's harder to do than to eat a diet that has <laughs> beef, chicken, or, you know, a meat source that has a little more of a complete protein for them, right? I, I just think that that's something we have to be careful about, too, as we move forward is the American diet, making sure that we're getting all the nutrients that we need, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There was a presentation at the Dietetic Association about muscle building, and that's something as I get old, I'm very, you know, interested in. I don't want to lose any more than I have to. But it's one of the building blocks, one of the essential amino acids, and in order to get enough leucine, I was going to have to add like 300 calories to my diet if I was going to get the leucine from plants. And like you said, I'd have to be pretty smart about it. I'd have to make sure I ate all the right things. And could I do that? I suppose I could. But it just, I'd rather not have to worry about it. So the biggest thing for me with, with protein is, I mean, it's been proven that we need to eat it three times a day. We need to eat as much for breakfast as we do for lunch and supper. And that is really hard. That is really hard for me. And so if I could change anything in my diet, I would still probably include protein. I mean, I do include meat protein because, like you say, it's, it's got a lot in it for the amount of calories you get. Mm-hmm. But to try to get better at eating more of it early in the day and less at night. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
I wanted to get onto the subject a little bit about industry funding. And I think that there is an impression and you hear this, I mean, I feel bad sometimes, I feel bad for the Dairy Council, I feel bad for the Beef Council, because there is an impression that these studies are industry funded. And, and I know that, you know, industry funding is, is a thing and that's, and some of it's very valid. You know, things need to be funded. Somebody has to pay for this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't just materialize out of thin air. What are your thoughts on studies like that? Should we dismiss them that if they're industry funded or can we look at them, you know, if they've been through peer review, is that reasonable? What is? What are your thoughts on those industry funded studies? Well, I think if you look at most of the research after being at the Beef Cattle Institute, I've learned that you go and you, you try to get funding for your projects, whether they are for beef or whether they're for um, something else. And so the, the process is supposed to be peer-reviewed, like you mentioned, and you want to have credible peer review. Is there going to be bias in peer review? That is, I think, the big question. And so is there bias when you look at some of the plant studies that have been done and they're funded by the mushroom council. Mm-hmm. Is there bias there? Is there bias when you look at the cranberry people? Are there bias mm-hmm. when you look at the people? Probably. Then what you look for is, has it been, can you repeat the study? So, you know, you say, okay, well, we have this study, and now we need to do more research, right? That's what it seems like it always says. But, so you want to see that it's been, the study has been repeated and has been also peer-reviewed again. And so I don't know what the 100% answer is, but I think knowing knowing that it was peer-reviewed correctly and knowing that it, it, you know, trying to learn more about that side of it, I think will help us feel better about the information. Mm-hmm. There was a discussion about among some dietitians. Actually, it was, I can't cite the study for sure, but it had to do with Texas A&M challenged Harvard on some studies that were done about about this whole plant-based thing, and they wanted to understand their resources a little better. So it kind of got into a tit-for-tat thing, but but so so it is a it is a tough thing, but it's something we need to be aware of. So I think it's great that you bring that up. Um, I th- I worked at Cargill. We had wonderful researchers there, but when I go out and try and sell something, they're like, "Well, yeah, but you're Cargill," you know, even right. though I knew that it had been peer-reviewed. So yeah, it's an issue in the industry, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I think my family kind of just shuts down. Oh, well, the dairy industry funded that study. And it's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that it's peer-reviewed or, you know, that so. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a lot of things printed in media that has no validity to it. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> since I've, and I, I should have expected that being a dietitian and reading all the stuff about how to lose weight. But I guess I thought that it would translate to how to raise me too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I would think probably two of the more controversial topics regarding beef and dairy as well, obviously having to speak to beef, are antibiotics and hormones. And I've yes. done a fair amount of reading about this. And, I, you know, I, I, I do a terrible job of explaining <laughs> to people that this is not a concern. So what are your, what do you, you know, if there was a person that was very concerned, what should we tell them as dietitians about antibiotics and hormones? Well, I think let's take them separately. Um, antibiotics, is there a concern with microbial resistance? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everybody's concerned about microbial resistance. Can we do better than what we do today? We're 
we're studying that, we're learning it in all disciplines because there's a fear that, I mean, it's a wonderful tool that we have in the toolbox to take care of sickness and illness. And if we don't have it, or if we can't create any new ones, you know, they, they want to take care of it. So I guess I would say, yes, there's concern. Is it misused? It could be done better. And there's there was a practice that was stopped about three or four years ago, which is where they don't put them, they don't put antibiotics routinely, and you can't buy them at the feed store unless you have an order from the veterinarian. Well, that antibiotic use by like 14% in one year. It's huge. Wow. It's kind of behavior changes, but it's it's a culture. So my dad would always give antibiotics in the feed if he got a new batch of cats in that had snotty noses. You know, he would put some. He would use that feed from the feed store. It was common. It was culture. But did they all need it? Probably not, because they weren't all going to get sick. So then you have to go back and say, okay, well, you know, let's let's be. And I think the same thing in human medicine. You know, I sit on a, it's a it's a program called One Health, and it's it's globally, but it's with people and with animals. It's got veterinarians on there. It's got physicians on it. And there's some there's real concern. The industry is getting better because for all those reasons I just mentioned. And and back to how do you really reduce antibiotics? We do things like washing hands. We do animal husbandry policies where you have clean water for your animals. You try to not have flies in the in the place. So there's programs called at least in the beef world, so beef quality assurance. There's ones for pork quality assurance, where there's audits where they go in and, and work with farmers and train farmers on. Here's the kinds of things you can do on your on your farm to reduce the need for antibiotics. You know, if, if you have, you know, a place where they're cutting their foot, for example, you know, you don't want to have that place anymore. You know, fix your feet, fix your footing in your, in your lot or whatever it is, or, or make some improvements. But but there's going to be times when you have to, it's a trade-off. So I have a foot rot in one of the pastures where they're going to get it in a feet. You give them a low-level amount of antibiotic to everybody, or you get sick, and you can't really risk losing an 800-pound animal, an $800 or $1,000 animal, so you're going to treat with antibiotics. But I think the really important thing for dietitians to know is I'm not eating antibiotics. I mean, if it's in my meat. Because there's a withdrawal time. Mm-hmm. The concern is if there's antibiotics going into the waste stream, if there's antibiotics that are being shed. I listen to, I talk about if you take the water sample out of a nursing, near a nursing home, it's amazing how much antibiotic resistance there is. <laughs> everybody's on antibiotics, you know, and so it's the water. Or like when somebody passes away and you flush them all down on the toilet, wrong thing to do. But a lot of these things translate for both people. What about hormones? Again, I think, you know, nobody likes the thought of extra hormones, particularly in women. Again, I feel like I do a terrible job of explaining this as well. I try to compare it to birth control pills and that just, just people don't understand. (laughs) But so how do you, how do you explain that and how should we explain it maybe more effectively? I've heard a veterinarian talk about it, and he, he uses the analogy that you talked about with the with the birth control pills, but he also uses a football field. And he says, compared to, you know, you have a blade of grass and a football field, about yeah. how much hormone, you know, you're getting compared to some of the other things that people do. And I always like to remember that soybeans and some other foods have hormones in them. So when you do 
comparison between that are naturally occurring, you know, and so we have naturally occurring hormones also. We give hormones, we don't have to give hormones, but if we give hormones, we get the kind of meat that customers have asked us for, which is lean meat, you know, muscle better, faster, more efficiently. So if you if you don't if you decide I want I don't want hormones in my meat, that's fine. No added hormones, but your price is going to go up because mm-hmm. the sustainability factors all go to heck. So that's the wrong way. And is it really is it harmful to me? I would you know, I don't worry about it in my beef supply. Because I know that in comparison, it's not very much compared to other foods. But I understand that it's difficult to explain that to people. And at the end of the show, I have a website that I'd like you to have. It's got some real quick infographics. Mm-hmm. Really helpful. That first you get to the top layer, and then if you really want to get the the scientific answer, you can get down to the research paper. So yeah. you just make three clicks. Great. I really like That'd be great. Um, I know we've talked about hormones a little bit on our show too with the soy and how the problem is, you know, even that though there's hormones there, it's not having an effect on the body either, right? Like a lot of the research. Am I wrong? No, I mean hormones are everywhere. I mean right. hormones are chemical signalers. They're in everything. Right. You know, that's the crazy part. People think they're avoiding it. They're, no, you're not. You're right. living. Right. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. So what do you think about that hormone-free label? And I know that, I don't know, is there actual regulation behind, you know, and maybe, I don't know if it's in the beef industry, I see like hormone-free chicken, things like that. I mean, is that is that just one of those free-from labels that everybody's sort of obsessed with now, or is it something that's actually an accurate representation? Well, the two that you mentioned, chickens and pork, they can't, they don't give hormones in those two species. So they're all hormone-free. So they're all, so it's one of those fear factor, I think, marketing techniques where they, oh, they don't have it, but what about beef? They don't say that. So, so I am a producer, a farmer, rancher. I could say, I'm going to raise my beef without hormones, added hormones. Like you say, the beef's already going to have hormones because they're a female cow and they have estrus and they produce a cycle and they have hormones, males have testosterone, but I'm going to produce without added hormones, but I'm going to have to add a couple couple bucks here yeah. in order to make it pay. If you believe that that is, you know, you believe that that's necessary, even though science doesn't prove it, right? <laughs> they will label them. And that is a problem because it looks like sometimes we throw each other under the bus in, in these uh, situations, so then it makes everybody fearful. And in reality, there's been no science proven, like you say, that it is a problem. Yeah. So people have perception. Yeah. Yep. I think the other thing that people think about with farming is, like you mentioned, how many farmers have disappeared through the country. You know, keeping cows, you know, in a confined space versus a pasture. What's, you know, I know this from like reading about chickens and eggs that are free range versus cage free versus this and that. What, what is your preference as a way to feed? Or is there something that you feel is, you know, from a humanity standpoint, a better way to do it? Or is it a case where 
pasture feeding is more or less effective. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think that is a really good question. Before I came to the Beef Cattle Institute, I don't think I really understood it. Even though I grew up on a farm, I don't think I really got it. But what my opinion is, impression is now, that is so difficult to convey to people is cows eat grass most all the time, their whole life. They're on, or some, some kind of forage. But this winter, there's not going to be any grass in Kansas. <laughs> and so we have to feed them something, and so we're going to feed them hay. Mm-hmm. And we did our, some of our ag tours. People just didn't understand hay. They're like, what are these big round things, and what are you going to do with them? You know, but they don't understand that even though it's a forage diet, it's, it's pasture, you can call them grass-fed, grass-finished. Most cows, that's what they eat is hay and some kind of forage. Now, when they get to the stage of where we like, you know, depending on what kind of, uh, if you talk about sustainability, you would want them to get to the end point quickly so that they aren't burping as much methane for climate change, they aren't as much water, they aren't doing all the things that we don't like, you know, and so in order to finish them, what you would call finish, I can tell you from our farm, we don't really have the pasture to have, we had 300 heads, so you got the mama cows, you got the, the yearlings, you know, some people may take them to a stalker where they just feed them grass in the summer. There's people that bring their cows from different parts of the United States to eat the flint those grass in Kansas. But anyway, it we don't have enough to do that all year. So when the when the cow get a certain age, we sell them. You sell them to either to a feedlot or to another person that's going to feed them more grass. And so when they go to the feedlot, that to me, the dietitian that I've learned is where the magic is. So are they stuffed in a pen and can't walk around? If you go look at a feedlot, you want to look for low-stress animal handling. You want to look for, okay, what, is a, what does a happy cow look like? <laughs> no? Are they mooing? Are they provoked? Are they hanging out? Do they have clean water? Do they have flies around them? Do they have, is the manure cleaned out of the pen? You know, there's a lot, as, the, as, as they have more resources and more facilities, people are able to do this in a, in a way that the cattle are comfortable. Because if the cattle aren't comfortable, they aren't going to eat. And they have, they have studies where they can actually put a chip in their mouth, and they walk them, they, they call them gross safe bumps. They know which cow, how long they had their head in the bone eating, and how long... <laughs> And, you know, what time of the day they're moving around. And which is very fascinating because if you have an animal that's kind of timid, for example, they, maybe they don't go to feed bugs as much. Mm-hmm. So maybe that kind of cow you want to raise. But on the other hand, you don't want a bunch of bullies in there. You know, <laughs> data, they collect data on these animals. And they say, okay, which ones, you know, are, are too blocky? And they keep the rest of them out of the way. They don't have the kind of temperament we want. Also look at pens and they say which ones need more antibiotics and which ones need less. You know which ones need to get sick so they can go back and say where did these cattle come from? You know which farmer brought them to us? You know what's happening on that farm that or what happened in the transportation? You know maybe they were on the truck longer than they needed to be. You know maybe it was cold the day that we moved them or maybe it was really hot. You know what is it that some of them got sick? And so they're able to do so much data collection. And big data is what is, if, if you take big data and you analyze it and you can make better decisions, then I think 
fascinating. Now, my brother, he's lucky if he knows how many are out in the pasture. He is, you know, he is not keeping track of them. And once in a while, I'm out riding, I'll find one that is, I'll find a bag of bones, and he didn't even know they passed away. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. But what I'm saying is he's a low-input guy. When you get up into the feedlot, you have a lot of science-based things going on. So I learned a whole different approach to feedlot. Now, we brought, like I say, some, a group of food service operators. They, when we took them to the feedlot, the, the comment was, well, I thought they'd be in cages. I thought the cattle would be in cages. You know, they had a very different impression of what they thought they were going to look like. But instead, what they found were cows that, you know, were just kind of hanging out. <laughs> Every place is that way. But I'm saying it's just like any kitchen or any food service operation. We have kitchens that are cleaner than others, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have kitchens that have better processes, better hand washing uh, practices than others. And same way in farming. But I think that as we get more data collection, we get more sophisticated, you know, the, the whole feed... The feed ration, they don't eat just corn in the feedlot. They have probably seven different, some of them have as many seven different steps. They may have a, one can of cattle that are going to go to uh, whole food stores, so they're good. They're not going to get any added uh, supplements. They're going to get a different ration. But they all are very balanced. And I mean, if we can do research like that on people, we <laughs> could really numbers. But, you know, they laugh at our research because, you know, our research is from people telling us what they do. And, I can't remember what I do, so I'm pretty sure there, there's some flaws in that. Yeah. Hmm. The chips in my Chips in our, yeah. <laughs> well, that, and, and that's so interesting, too, that you have different, you know, um, manufacturers or different uh, customers that want different things, and that does make sense. You know, obviously, you see, you know, grass-fed meats being advertised, you know, and that is, that's interesting that, you know, there, you've got certain cows that are headed to Whole Foods versus, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a regular grocery store and how different they're, you know, you have to treat them differently. That's just, that, that never occurred to me that there would be different treatment for right. animals going different places. When you think about animal welfare, which is always kind of interesting to me, animal welfare meaning, did you take care of the cow? Were they, were they well cared for? Did you do all these extra things? When you go to a feedlot, what you'll see is they're all cared for. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they have audits and they have some of the different things in place that can prove it. And they may have other, like you say, other attributes when they're going to some of these other places. Absolutely. But when it comes to basic animal welfare, they don't single one out and say, I'm going to whip this one and I'm going to not feed it. Yeah. Right. They, because it's not good business and it's right. not good things. Yeah. I, I have, when I first went to school, it was 30 some years ago. I worked in a feedlot as part of my training for a vet tech. And I mean, it was hooping and hollering and there was dust and you know, they were pulling the cattle around. And now they are not even allowed to hardly touch them. They have like a, they take like a little grocery sack and tie it to the end of a stick and they wave it around. And that's enough to make an animal move, usually. But you aren't yelling at them. You are, you are doing things, you know, what they call low-stress animal handling. Now, why do they do that? Because they found out that they don't run around and scare them. You know, they're going to be more content, and they're going to eat better, and they're going to gain faster. So there was a return on it for learning all these practices. There was the, the right reasons, but there was also an economic incentive. And if you've ever heard of Temple Grandin, she's like the guru of animal welfare. She's a, a animal scientist that had autism, and she would 
she's still doing autism, but she works in Colorado State, and she really redefined all of the animal handling facilities based on what but her principles were. So it's a very interesting read. They did a movie with her thinking in pictures with Claire Damon a few years ago. Very interesting. Like, very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think this has been great. I so appreciate the information. I was so excited to talk to you and learn all these great things. And I think a lot of our listeners, I think a lot of us just don't know a lot about the farming side of it. And this has been really interesting to me. Right. I think the, the internet's controlled the conversation. Yes. You know, if you go to, and everybody, like you we've talked about, or it has an agenda. Right. And because so few people are farming now, people don't have the understanding. My, my dad was a farmer when he was growing up, and his impression of all of this is so different than people of my generation who didn't grow up on a farm. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think, because the Internet's controlled the conversation a little more than maybe they should be, I feel like voices like yours, Patty, are so important to get the facts out there about this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I I think farming is fascinating. And and as I move back to the farm, like I say, that's where I am right now. And um, it's not like when my dad was here. You know, what I remembered, that's not really what it is anymore. Everything's so big, I can't drive it. it's, you know, it's a different world. But on the other hand, farmers and our businessmen, they've been able to get away from some of the menial, the lower end tasks. You know, when, when like your dad, maybe he was able to get off the farm and have a college education right. or do a different job. He didn't have to stay home and not go right. You know, when we were in school, most of the farm kids didn't get to participate in sports. Right. You know, they had to go home and do chores. And and so now this has freed people up to be more different kinds of occupations and ag economists and, and to strategize. The technology in farming now is way over my head. But <laughs> it's interesting. You know, like I'm learning about cover crops and I'm learning about how we use diversified livestock. We put livestock on the corn stalks. And so, you know, even though the corn was going over the combine, and I was like, wait, wait, that's all my corn. And I'm going to go pick it up and. They're like, get over it, you know, we're going to put cows out here and not eat it, you know, or the deer will eat it, or somebody will eat it. Right. But my dad didn't get played, he didn't go to all that work. We didn't even grow corn because we didn't have the kind of seed that would be tolerant enough to the to the drought, you know, for upland corn. So they plant different crops, they're more sophisticated. It, it's been fun for me, but it's also a little bit humbling, you know. And I came home thinking, oh, well, I want to do all this great soil regeneration. Well, it takes fun, you know. And so you look for a farm program. You look for all these reasons why maybe they don't happen as easily. And they're risky. So what if we do it and we don't have a crop, you know, because we screwed up? Well, the margins are thin enough anymore that you can't really afford not to have a crop. And so I look at my farmer, and he looks at me like, well, like I wanted to do all this stuff along the river. Which I could have done, like put a buffer strip in so that it would filter all the nitrogen going into the water. But, you know, a fourth of a mile up the river, nobody else is doing it. So, does it really, am I a drop in the bucket? Or does there have to be programs and policies in place where we all get on board? You know, and I think that's what farmers are asking for. They they know that they could do some of these things better, but, but, you know, it's just trying to figure out what's the best way and the best policy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, again, we thank you for joining us, and we are always looking for your questions. If you have questions for Patty, we'd love to hear them. You can send it to us at dish at secretliferd.com. That's dish at secretliferd.com, and we'd be happy to pass them on to her and maybe even compose some follow-up answers if, if you guys are interested. Mm -hmm. We also look forward to show ideas. You can, again, send us an email, or you can visit us on Instagram at The Secret Life Dietitians or on Twitter at T Dietitians. And again, we thank Patty for being here. Yeah, thanks. Um, and we look, we look forward to seeing you guys wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day.